Welcome to People Data Insights, a new podcast to explore the people, data, and insights fueling innovation and human resources. My name is Paul Ryman, founder of Novo Insights, and I'll be your primary host. I'm joined today and will be joined regularly by Brian Briscoe. Brian, say hello. Hello. Since this is an intro episode, uh, our purpose today is to just set the stage about what to expect on People Data Insights and give everyone a chance to get to know Brian and I a little bit. So let's start with who we are. Brian, the floor is yours. The floor is mine. Thank you, Paul. Um, so I think to t- say a little bit about myself, I'm a compensation person by background and training. Uh, that's a nice subfunction of HR where we like to you know, put a value on everybody's time and essentially their lives. So at times it can be a little bit morbid, but at times it's, uh, it's super exciting to be a part of like how to motivate and incentivize people and do those types of things. Uh, my background is um, somewhat eclectic business things, but uh, but definitely came up through the compensation function. I've done uh, most jobs in HR, everywhere from payroll administrator to chief people officer, and am happily uh, working for the largest hotel company in the world right now. And uh, and very much enjoy it and work with a lot of people that uh, that get to do a lot of cool stuff every single day. Doing cool stuff is always a great place to be, that's for sure. The uh, So whenever we have a guest on the show, which we expect to do every so often to, to get to know the people in the HR world, there's a couple of questions that I intend to ask every time. So Brian, I'm going to put you through that now as sort of uh, not really a guest, but a guest today just so everyone can see what kind of questions we'll ask and what kind of stories come out of that. Great. All right. Ask away, Paul. I'm sure you're looking forward to it. So the the first question, um, actually, I I might make it three just to calibrate um, a little bit. So on a scale of one to 10, how much do you love data? How much do I love data? That would be, like, I feel like, to give a data answer on a scale of one to 10, it should be something clever like 9.27 or something very precise, <laughs> but it should be, I would say, I'd say I'm probably a nine on the, on the data thing. Cause I don't know what ten, like 10 feels like it might be. Like there's somebody that loves data more than me. And I don't want to, you know, over extrapolate from the trend, but I would put myself as a solid nine. All right. Well, then the the second question as a follow-up to that then is, well, what makes you a nine or or when did you become a nine? When did you fall in love with data? We'll we'll declare nine is still being in love. Yeah. So I would say I fell in love with data when I was probably about 12 years old when my grandfather gave me and my cousins and sister – some shares of stock in a company that I can't remember the name of that would make the story so much more meaningful. If I could remember the, the, like the ticker symbol or something and go see what actually happened to it. It clearly wasn't that good of an investment. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't (laughs) the best investment, but what it did was like, uh, you know, it was was basically like a penny stock and he was like, my grandfather had made some investment in it. He didn't like it. And rather than admit his loss, I think what he did was said, I'm going to give all my grandkids 200 shares of this company and track it for them. And so, so like he get, he kind of made this big deal about it. And, you know, I would go to the newspaper every day cause we had newspapers then like this was before the, uh, the internet and the idea that stock prices were ready, readily available with real time 
information. So you had to go through the newspaper every day, find the ticker signal, see like infractions that this stock was worth, you know. Yes, 26 more. and three quarters. And yes. you're like, what in the world did that mean? Yeah, yeah. Like when you're like, this is three thirty seconds of, uh, you know, a dollar. I'm like, well, how do I get a 30 seconds of a dollar? <laughs> um, and everything had to be bought and sold in lots of a hundred so that, you know, fractions could be rounded out and this, you know, just, just craziness when you think back on how it used to be done. But, uh, so I would say that that's probably why I'm a nine on the data scale. Cause like my, my love for the data was really driven by like, how do I get money? And I was trying to figure out those types of things. So, uh, so I, but I tracked that and then I started following other stocks and like my dad would bring home the wall street journal that he had a subscription to at work and, he would leave it there and I'd start reading, you know, going through these things. And so I'd say probably when I was about 12, that's kind of like my early memory of like data being really important. Cause like, you know, depending on what was in this newspaper and how many 30 seconds this, you know, $1 and one thirty second stock went up, it was going to determine whether or not, you know, I could buy like a cool thing for Christmas that year. Um, so yeah, that was where I, that was probably the start of it, honestly. Excellent. That is a good answer, of course. Um, so then, not around the twelve-year-old sort of stock tracking in the in the three thirty seconds. Uh, the sec- the last question will be: Tell me about a time when the data surprised you, or when you learned something, or when it changed your opinion about something. So, kind of a shocking data conclusion. A shocking data conclusion. So that's a that's a really good question because I feel like that happens all of the time. Um, just like that's the fun part about data is you're you're sort of looking for truth. I think early on in my career in HR, without naming any companies, I was working on this incentive plan, and we paid people for how many people didn't quit at a location. So it's high turnover business, and uh, one of the things that that people that ran the company knew was that having high turnover, like we knew we expected high turnover, but when you had extra high turnover, that would hurt the business, right? Um, it's kind of like a, a tenant of HR that everybody would talk about too, um, you know, across industries. But within the company, it was like, you know, 100% turnover might be okay, but 300% turnover would be bad. And so somewhere in the... But but measuring turnover is a challenge, especially if you're doing it on like a, a four-week rolling basis. So we were paying out bonuses every four weeks based on how much turnover somebody had, which for a lot of companies or people, that's kind of a bizarre thing to think about. But what we bonus people on was basically on a trailing 12 months, how many people quit from your from your unit or your location. And that seemed to kind of make sense when you looked at it on face value. But what we really saw was when you dug in deeper to the data, um, it was like, I kept getting these phone calls from people and there were hundreds of units. So people could be compared and they would say, well, I'm never going to hit this bonus because I'm in a high revenue location. And, you know, as we kind of dug into it, there was no adjustment factor for the fact that, if I had a unit and, and all these units were, were basically the same size, they, um, they had the same, you know, plans and things, but if I had, you know, a higher revenue unit, I had to have more employees to cover more shifts. And so I had higher, 
I had higher quits, like my turnover rate might not be, um, might not be as high, but just kind of the way that the company was doing the metrics created this, this environment where what happened then was managers that were sticking around, they were getting great bonuses for revenue and profitability. They weren't getting the bonus for having people not for having too many people quit. They would, it would cause them to lose a monthly bonus. So they started sandbagging people. And what they would do is like there were, there could be like a city where there might be 10 of these units in the same place. Um, somebody would call and say, Hey, I'm short staffed. I need somebody. Um, somebody, so if I'm at unit A, I've gotten all of my people uh, signed up for shifts, but somebody called, you know, because it's a high turnover business, somebody says, hey, I'm quitting in two weeks. Uh, when somebody from another location called and said, I need a person, you'd send over that person from that location that just turned in their two weeks notice. And then you just never scheduled them to work at your location. So then they counted as a quit from the other location, if that makes any sense. I know that's a lot of pronouns there, but Basically, these games started happening where people were like passing around their short-time employees, um, and the the whole incentive plan kind of lost its its meaning because you either couldn't achieve it if you were doing so well on your financials, or if you were on the margin, you were trying to either convince people not to quit that month, or people were logging people in as ghost employees to get their bonus and then sandbag their bonus for the next time. Uh, so there was a lot of like gamesmanship that happened and what, what that really got me into was something that's probably stuck with me for the rest of my career is like looking for disincentives. So the things about data that like sound good, like we say we want to encourage good behavior, but like how people actually execute it when it shows up, um, leads to the opposite direction that you want it to go. So versus people saying, I want happier employees or I want to screen people better or do that. They just say, how do I pass my losses off on somebody else? Or do I, you know, fake somebody's payroll so that they stay here a week longer so that I get my bonus for that time period? Uh, those are the kind of things that you want to avoid. Um, so that's, that's kind of my, that was like the first time that was kind of like a, a big aha moment for me. It was how data sometimes makes people do uh, irrational things. Sounds like a great topic for a future episode as well around the horror stories of poor incentives. Yeah. Because uh, I'm sure between the two of us and some friends we have, we can come up with all kinds of bad examples of where incentives drove the wrong behavior without question. Yeah. All right. So should, should you be answering these questions too, Paul? Is it your turn it to say? That feels fair, I suppose, uh, that uh, is part of the getting to know exercise. I should probably be on the hot seat, too. Yeah. So, Paul, when did you fall in love with data? All right. Should I ask you the 1 to 10 question first, I guess? What's the 1 to 10 scale for you? That's. I think that's probably fair as well. You know, you set expectations differently now because I would say, gosh, I have to be a 10 as I've created an entire firm now around my love for data. Um, so if it's not a 10, why would I do that, right? Um, but I think it's also, you know, I'm also not the, the one to assume that I'm in the 100th percentile of data loving. There's probably somebody out there that uh, not only has created a company, but, you know, is married to it, I guess, something like that. And yeah. certainly my wife would say uh, I'm off the scale uh, just because I can't do anything without having the data behind it. So I, I'll go 10, but recognize that there's probably other people that can turn it to 11 uh, for that, for those that understand that reference. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, that's a good reference. Good. Like pop culture, spinal tap. That's a good one. <laughs> okay, good. I would, I would even argue having met your wife that you're probably a 9.9 because you have a wife and therefore you're not married to the data you are married to uh, <laughs> a lovely person, but we'll give you the 10 since this is your, your whole gig here. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I, I, I get to make the rules, right? Yeah. All right. So when did you fall in love with data then? Yes, uh, later than you. So uh, I, I grew up in a house that was not a data house, a blue-collar family mostly. Um, and my my falling in love with data comes out of a love for math that was always there. But math wasn't really data, right? If we think back to uh, you know elementary, middle school, high school, back in the 80s and 90s, it wasn't practical. I mean, it was arithmetic, right? It wasn't data. Um, and that's what I thought math was to an extent. And... Uh, when I went to college um, at the University of Chicago, they have a, a bit of a, you know, a, a legacy or a reputation around the general education, right? Making sure you learn about different things and explore different things. And one of the required sequences is in the social sciences. And I, I took a class called Democracy in Social Science uh, when I was in high school. And afterwards, I was convinced I was going to be president someday, uh, no longer part of my career plan. Um, but the concept of exploring the roots of democracy, the issues related to democracy was interesting to me. What I didn't know is that the second course in that sequence um, was actually around the measurement of sort of societal norms <laughs> and, and democratic practices. And it was taught by uh, Professor James Davis, who ran the National Opinion Research Center, um, which does a general survey of just Americans every year. And it was a surprise, but fascinating to me how Nork and how Professor Davis used survey information, population information, census information, whatever, to just understand problems or issues that we see day in and day out. So it wasn't just a theoretical discussion about, well, why do people vote this way? You know, what are the economic issues that drive changes in voting behaviors or in people's sentiment or feelings about work, about culture, about the government? Um, so using data to solve a problem was the first time I'd ever really seen that as a thing, right? Math was a class, uh, but this is a time where data helped answer a question. Um, and I just, I just loved it. I, I thought it was the coolest thing. Uh, you know, changed my major the next day, enrolled in a stats class uh, for the next quarter, you know, all the things that people do and they just realize, okay, this is cool, that you can answer answer questions uh, using information that I just didn't even realize existed up until that point. Hmm. That's really cool. I, like, just having known you as an adult, I just assumed that you were born, um, like, in a spreadsheet and crawled out of the computer, like, in a Tron, <laughs> in, like, a Tron kind of way, uh, to go back to <laughs> 80s movies references. Uh, so yeah, that's, I, I had no idea you're such a late bloomer. So, um, yeah, that's, that's cool. I didn't even know how to work spreadsheets, uh, until I had an internship, um, towards the end of college. Um, and I had to teach myself Excel. So, um, definitely a late bloomer from that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So my, my first Excel thing, I remember being a kid and I don't remember how old, but my dad built a hurricane tracker in like Excel 1.0 where he would plot the latitude and longitude <laughs> hurricanes. Cause we lived on the East coast. And I remember thinking that's pretty cool. Um, and then I remember my dad trying to teach me Excel until I like 
got out of college and got my first job. And then I was like, what was that thing that you used to track the hurricane? But, um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So question number two, then. So, uh, what was the time that data surprised you? Quick bit of background for those who don't know me who are listening. I started my career as a, as an HR consultant, um, focusing in compensation mostly then went in house and did, you know, rewards and HR operations work for a while before now starting out on my own. And as a consultant, there's a set of things that you are kind of taught to be true and that you organize your work around, um, you know, and pay for performance and the concept of needing to differentiate rewards for, you know, high performers versus low performers. It's just a, a bedrock of everything you do. Um, and I remember building training, um, you know, and, you know, manager enablement, HR enablement around how to have the hard comp conversation, which was always presumed to be like the person who gets a zero, right, uh, in the merit cycle or the, you know, the bonus that's under target or, you know, not getting something. Um, when right. I started as a practitioner and actually had to drive one of these cycles and we, and we built a feedback loop where we asked for, you know, through a survey, asked for feedback from people after the cycle ended. Um, and a couple of the questions are, you know, well, do you think you're paid fairly? How did the conversation go with your manager? We asked managers, how did the conversations go with your team? Um, and what we heard was that the hardest conversations, meaning the ones that had the worst comp outcomes, didn't necessarily have the lowest satisfaction. Um, and it, it surprised me. The, the, what we learned in the data was that Oftentimes, it was the people that got the best rewards that were the least satisfied with the process and the outcome. Um, so, is you know, we had to dig into that quite a bit to figure out, well, why the heck did that happen? And you know, bottom line, on top, it was really around you know feeling good about something is where reasonable expectations are met, and sometimes the conversations you expect to be the best don't have expectations that are aligned accordingly. Um, but I just did not expect that we needed to spend as much time educating and training on how to have what we thought was an easy, good conversation um, as, you know, having a, a more difficult conversation. That's a that's an interesting insight. Like it is a little counterintuitive, but then at the same time, I can think of a couple of former bosses of mine that would probably be like, yes, Paul, and Brian was the case study for that. Um yeah, like that's, uh, it is difficult to manage expectations there. You know, that's, uh, that, that's one of those things where I do think from my own experience as well, like the person that gets a zero kind of knows it's coming. The person that thinks that, uh, that they've been a rock star, um, you know, they're kind of expecting like you doubled my pay this year. Rock star treatment. Uh, yeah, rock. Yeah, exactly. Because you you saw that The Rock made twenty million dollars to make a movie last year. Like, if we make half of that, ten million. Like, and that's that's usually not the type of increases that come out of uh, of those big merit cycles and things. And that's a, that's yep, a good one. Totally. Yeah, it, uh, and it's something certainly you know, like you said, your stories, things that have stuck with you. It has stuck with me to not assume that what you want to be easy is going to be easy or, or the you know positive outcomes are, are going to be received positively. Again, it sounds simple when you say it, but 
you know, an important lesson learned to, to challenge what do you think's going to go well and what do you think could go wrong, you know, in any given process or cycle. Yeah. Well, there is the, uh, there's the famous formula that happiness equals reality minus expectations. And, uh, there you go. I think that one is, that one holds pretty true. Um, yeah. All right. Totally. Well, a perfect segue then on that theme around expectations. So now that now that those listening know us a little bit, uh, let me f- spend a few moments sort of set, setting expectations around what this podcast will be like. What what should future episodes look like, feel like, and how will they be experienced? Um, so you know, one thing it's you know a goal that Brian, you and I have shared when we spoken publicly together at conferences over the years. Um, you know, it's really, there's two kind of sub goals that we always have. So one is we're going to have a good time and we hope people have a good time. Um, so, hope, you know, you'll hear us laugh. Certainly you won't be able to hold back from cracking a few jokes because that's just how it works. Um, but, you know, we want people to hear our joy and our passion for this topic and, and hopefully they'll enjoy it as a result. So, you know, entertainment is one of our goals. Um, the, the second sort of sub goal is you know, we're also not expecting to change the world and teach you everything in a podcast episode, but our, we do want you to walk away with at least one thing, right? One takeaway, whether it's an idea, a quote that you can use, uh, a data point that you can deploy back in your organization to make an impact. So just one. Um, if, we, if you get two, we've exceeded expectations. Um, if we hit zero, that's a problem. So our goal is just one kind of aha over the course of an episode. So goals being, we'll have fun, and you get one one thing out of it. Um, the second sort of expectation to shape is around, well, what are we going to cover? Um, well, I don't know. Uh, you know, the, the, the name of the podcast is People Data Insights for a reason, which is we want to just explore the people data and insights around HR. And we're going to explore the topics that pop up or that interest us. Um, or people that we find fascinating in in our industry. Um, there'll certainly be a bend towards data and analytics because that's what we do. That's what we love uh, as nines ish on the uh, on the love scale. Um, you know, but we're certainly going to give ourselves some latitude to cover what makes sense when we stumble upon something worth talking about. Even in this conversation, we've stumbled upon a few things that are probably worth um, you know an episode in themselves around incentive design, around process management, gathering feedback. Um, and we're definitely open to suggestions from from our community. Um, so you know, definitely feel free to reach out. Any any other goals or hopes or dreams uh, you would add to the conversation, Brian, as we set expectations for the future? I think you know we'll work our way through the guest list kind of uh, approach, right? I think that would be great. Maybe we'll get up to uh, you know, like Adam Grant, George Lucas, uh, a few. Um, Maybe Steven Spielberg, if he's around, just because, you know, we'll drop some movie references in every now and then. Um, You know, any celebrities, uh, famous rich people that want to give out money, but also, you know, people that we know in our network. And uh, I think that should be that should be fun to pull out topics and, and different perspectives there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, more to come. Uh, we're excited to get this start. At least I know I am. I believe you are as well, Brian. Um, and we hope that all of those of you listening will join us for the ride. 
Uh, be sure to subscribe to People Data Insights on whatever platform you get your podcasts. Um, obviously, the shameless plug that goes with every podcast, feel free to give us five stars because that does help the robots suggest it to other people. This podcast is brought to you by Novo Insights, where we help people teams use data to make a bigger impact in their organizations. Reach out if you want to learn more at novoinsights.com or on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Has anyone looked at your exit interview data lately? Probably not. In a recent LinkedIn poll, nearly 80% of respondents said that their exit listening strategy was ineffective. So maybe it's time to try something different. Novo Retain is a purpose-built exit survey that's easy to deploy to your departing employees to learn more about why they are really leaving you. Using a third-party survey removes bias and promotes honesty and shows your departing employees that you care about their opinion. Our simple reporting tools make it easy to see trends and our analyst experience can help you generate ideas to improve retention. Find out more by going to www.novoinsights.com slash novoretain.